Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. Ken McGugan is a prolific writer and popular historian. He is extremely well known for his four biographical narratives of Arctic exploration. Fatal Passage, the untold story of John Ray, the Arctic adventurer who discovered the fate of Franklin. Ancient Mariner, the amazing adventures of Samuel Hearn, the sailor who walked to the Arctic Ocean. Lady Franklin's Revenge, a true story of ambition, obsession, and the remaking of Arctic history. And finally, Race to the Polar Sea, the heroic adventures of Alicia Kent Kane. No one I can think of would be in a better position to write the full history and the search for the exploration of the Northwest Passage. And that's exactly what Ken has done in his newest book, Dead Reckoning, The Untold Story of the Northwest Passage, published by HarperCollins in 2017. Ken, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Greg. It's really a wonderful opportunity to be able to talk to you in the studio today. But before we begin talking about your book, can you tell us how you ended up becoming a historian after so many years of working as a journalist and editor? Yeah, well, in the beginning, actually, funnily enough, I started out as a fiction writer. That's what I was bent on doing right from the earliest days. I mean, 15 years old, I knew I was going to be a writer. 19 years old, I went on the road in the mode of Jack Kerouac and ended up spending a year down in San Francisco. And after that, I ended up spending one summer on a mountain in the Canadian Rockies, Mount Sarbac, halfway between Banff and Jasper, up there in the tower. And I was writing fiction and I looked around and I said, geez, you know, it's going to be kind of tricky to earn a living doing this. And I realized that I was still young in my early 20s. And I thought, you know, writing appears to be the only thing I know how to do. Maybe I should see if I can turn to journalism and make a living at it. So I returned back east here to Toronto. I'm originally from Montreal, but came to Toronto, took a degree, and uh, then I worked as a journalist for 20 years, maybe a little more than that. I was at the Toronto Star to start. Then I was at the Montreal Star after doing some more rambling and then to the Calgary Herald where I found a nice niche as the books editor. So I was doing nothing but, you know, write about books and authors and the publishing industry and so forth. So along the way, while I was doing that, I published three or four books, including a couple of novels there. And I remember uh, chatting with uh, Peter C. Newman about his uh, company of adventurers and we got talking about this figure, John Ray, and we both agreed that he was fabulous. A while after that, I won a fellowship to a University of Cambridge, spend uh, three months in Cambridge, and I thought, well, I'll write another novel. I'm going to use John Ray as a minor figure in the background, kind of a contemporary novel, well, in the mode of possession by A.S. Byatt a contemporary framing story and a historical story in the background. So Ray was going to be that historical story. So then when I got to Cambridge, I started poking around in the archives. And gee, wouldn't you know it, his original papers were there at the Scott Polar Research Institute. And when I began looking into it more deeply, I realized, well, wait a minute, this guy's been ripped off by history. And uh, that upset me no end. I don't know why it did, but it did, the injustice of it. So I thought, well, 
I'm not going to write this as a novel. If I write it as a novel, people are going to say, well, he's just making it up. We don't have to take this too seriously as a historical reality. And so I set the novel aside and I wrote it as nonfiction. And that was Fatal Passage, my first book about Arctic exploration. And that's how I got into it. And then one led to another after that. Well, you've been very focused on it because that book was published in 2001 and your other books have been published since. And that's four books. So what attracts you to the history of northern exploration and to the discovery and exploration of the Northwest Passage in particular? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. I mean, it's becoming difficult to deny that I have an obsession. So uh, <laughs> certainly that's one of my major obsessions. Well, I found the explorers to be such interesting individuals. They're interesting characters for a storyteller because they're all obsessed with one thing or another. And that makes them interesting. They're not just obsessed, though. They're ready to put their lives on the line in pursuit of their obsession. And that is intrinsically interesting uh, as a story, you know. So apart from that, I'm a, a fairly unabashed Canadian, let me put it that way. And this, to me, Okay, the Americans have the American Civil War. And if you go into an antiquarian bookseller, they'll tell you that down in the States, that's what sells. Nothing but the American Civil War. Every year, there's a new take on this guy or that guy who was involved, etc. Whereas we here in Canada, we have the story of Arctic exploration, the Northwest Passage. That's our story, uniquely ours. That's part of the attraction for me as well. Well, in Dead Reckoning, you begin with Henry Hudson and his ill-fated attempt to find the much-rumored Northwest Passage in 1607 and 1608. So can you describe Hudson's second voyage into the bay that was eventually named after him. I mean, why did his crew mutiny? Yeah, that's the first great harbinger of the disasters to come. Hudson was another one of these really obsessive individuals. And you see that in his early explorations. They send him north. He goes north for a while, runs into ice, and then he crosses the ocean and goes down and discovers, quote-unquote, the Hudson River in New York. This guy... When he got his teeth around a bit, he just went with it. So he enters into Hudson Bay there in 1609, I guess he goes in. He ends up trapped near the bottom of Hudson Bay, down near James Bay, actually, Charlton Island. And the ice comes in, and then he's stuck there. Now, his men aren't quite as obsessed as he is. And the winter there, okay, I mean, we both know about Canadian winters. And <laughs> you can imagine these guys have come from London in that case, and uh, they aren't uh, ready for a full-on northern Canadian winter. But it hits them just the same. And guys, uh, you know, they start suffering, and, they, you know, some of them die, and they're scurvy and all that. And, but they get through that winter. And then they say, okay, we've done it. Okay, let's head for home. And Hudson says, are you kidding? The water's opening up again. We're on the trail here of finding this Northwest Passage that uh, we've been bent just for several decades on, on finding. I'm not going to quit now. Look, look at this map here. We just have to keep going west across Hudson Bay, as it's now called. And we're going to find this, the riches of Cathay. They say, I don't think so. And they put him and his teenage son and a few fellows who remain loyal to him into this small boat. And there's a very poignant image. Um, they're in this small boat and the, and, the, and the mutineers sail off in the relatively big ship, the Victory. And they sail off north 
And there's this image of Hudson and his men in the small boat kind of rowing after it. They're trying to catch the ship to confer further. But, you know, the mutineers look out and see this. And they say, you know, sails up, away we go. And they pull away, and that's the last anyone has ever heard, really, of Hudson. Right. So with the expansion of the fur trade in the Northwest came a number of overland explorations by various traders and explorers. They were either working for the Hudson's Bay Company or more often, more likely, uh, the Montreal traders, in particular the Northwest Company. Now, one of these was... The Hudson Bay Company's Samuel Hearn and the Champlain Society published his journals a very long time ago. Now, he was very highly dependent on the indigenous people who lived in the north. One of the characters that you write about in Dead Reckoning is Matonaby, who seems remarkable to me. Can you describe how he guided Hearn overland to the Arctic Ocean and what happened? Yeah, that's another fascinating story. The uh, subsidiary motivation was, in fact, still the ongoing quest for the Northwest Passage. The primary motivation in that case was the quest for for riches, uh, you know, at the mouth of the far-off Metal River, as they called it. And that's a wonderful book that the Champlain Society, a wonderful thing they did publishing that. I myself wrote a new forward and published paperback edition of that book, and it's fascinating. It's a wonderful book, as you know. And there's a lot you can read there between the lines and then poking around in the archives. I actually think the third reason that Samuel Hearn ended up going out was what he wanted to. First of all, he was a big strapping guy, who young guy. He'd grown up in the Royal Navy. He'd traveled with the fighting Captain Samuel Hood during the Seven Years' War, and he was ambitious. He wanted to go out there himself. But the other thing, and it's difficult to to pin this down, but my opinion, my considered opinion, is that Moses Norton, who was in charge at Prince of Wales Fort there at the time, I think he wanted to kill Hearn. I think he wanted he wanted Hearn dead, because Hearn had a romance going with Mary Norton, the daughter of Moses Norton. And Moses Norton had all kinds of things going with the young women in and around. And I suspect Mary Norton was one of those uh, whom he was abusing. So Moses Norton didn't want Hearn getting in his way. And if you read the journal, parts of the journal with that in mind, I think you'll see where I'm coming from. In any case, yes. So he sends Hearn out. And the first two times Hearn goes out, he ends up floundering, being deserted. Guys are leaving him. Well, why are they leaving him? Well, Moses Norton said, Shh, when you get him out there, maybe just leave him out there, will you? So, but Hearn, Hearn is intrepid and he's smart and he manages to make it back to the fort. He doesn't quite twig at this point. I think he does later the motivations of Moses Norton. But okay, the second time he goes out, he's floundering around out there and out of the fog, as it were, out of the snowstorm, out of the blizzard, comes this amazing guy, Matonaby, a Dene native who was the foremost trader of the times, leader among the Dene people and Hudson's Bay Company's great ally in the fur trade. Matonaby takes Hearn under his wing and they go back to Prince of Wales Fort there together and soon they leave together. But this time, Matonaby's in charge. He says, okay, we're going to do this my way. None of this futzing around. The way we travel, and yes, we can go to the far-off Metal River. The way we travel, we follow the animals in small groups, and eventually we wend our way westward. So Matonaby's in charge. 
Hearn is traveling with Matanabe. He's the only European in the in a great crowd, which grows larger. Because as you get further west then, what happens is other Native peoples join the party. Yeah, yeah, we'll travel with you. And not all of them are well motivated. In fact, at this time, the context is the Chippewayan Dene and the Cree have made peace, but the Dene and the Inuit have not. And that's a matter of, uh, well, whose hunting grounds are these? One bunch says, these are mine. The other bunch says, no, they're mine. And so there's back and forth, right? So, and then what happened, of course, is the infamous massacre at Bloody Falls, which Hearn uh, witnesses when the Dene creep up on a camp of sleeping Inuit and conduct a massacre. So Hearn sees that. I, this is very near the mouth of the Coppermine River. And that's, well, Hearn does get there and he puts a point a first point on, on the channel that is the southern channel of the Northwest Passage. But then they decide, I mean, they decide to get out of there because they strongly suspect that there could be other Inuit around who aren't going to care for what just happened. They were a retaliation. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, Matanabe gets them out of there and, and gets, gets her back to uh, Prince of Wales Fort. Right. In one of your subsequent chapters, you deal with Alexander Mackenzie's canoe voyage down North America's second longest river to the Arctic Ocean in 1799. So what's the significance of Mackenzie's voyage, navigational or otherwise? Yeah, and again, and this is one of the things I keep returning to in Dead Reckoning, Mackenzie had a native person with him. In this case, they called him the English chief, undoubtedly because he spoke English. So he was the one who stuck with Mackenzie. And Mackenzie was actually, as you know, bent on making his way to the Pacific Ocean on that voyage. Uh, they set out. I mean, he came across country from Montreal, and he originally came from the Isle of Lewis in Scotland. But anyway, so he's, he, he's out there, and he's, he thinks he's found the way westward which is yet to be found. So he's there canoeing along, and just when the river is supposed to turn, it fails to do so. The river keeps heading north. Well, Mackenzie, you know, well, what are we going to do? He keeps going north with the river. This is after a number of treks and so forth and getting lost in the woods and a terrible time. But he's, uh, he's another determined individual. He's not going to be stopped. And he's not going to turn around and say, well, I followed the river and it didn't go where I wanted it. I'm going to turn back. No, he's, he's going to follow that river to the end. And the end takes him again to, to the Arctic coast. So the real significance in terms of exploration there is that that's a second point on the Arctic coast. And two points imply a line. So when you get back and you look at the map, they say, well, there seems to be a coastline here, and I wonder how far it goes to the east and to the west, because getting there has established that there's no passage to the south of there. If there had been, they would have crossed it. So neither Hearn nor Mackenzie crossed any such passage, and that left only the Arctic coast of the continent. So let's move to the 19th century. Based on what I've read, not only from your book but from other books, much of the exploration of the Northwest Passage by this time was being driven by the British Royal Navy. Is this true? And if so, why was this the case? Well, this is true in part. But I think it's important to clarify that virtually the whole of the Southern Channel 
was elaborated by fur trade explorers. I mean, after Hearn and Mackenzie finding those two points, the major figures were Thomas Simpson and Peter Warren Dees, who pushed on far beyond to the east uh, and to the west, as a matter of fact. And, and then, of course, John Ray, whom I will probably get to talk about a little bit later. So the southern channel of the passage was largely elaborated uh, by fur trade explorers. But what I call the orthodox history has it that the Royal Navy discovered everything. And, you know, in fairness, those Royal Navy officers did discover the way in through Lancaster Sound. And then John Franklin, that was Edward Parry. And then the way south was John Franklin, who managed to get south through the northern coast, northern tip of King William Island. So, yeah, the Royal Navy did that. The Royal Navy did that. They got really active again because after the Napoleonic War. They had all these half-pay officers. They were paying them all this money, and they had nothing for them to do. Well, can you describe John Franklin in particular? Because he made three attempts in exploration over a fairly extended period. Yeah, John Franklin, he's a fascinating character. In a way, he's a controversial character. Okay, his first overland expedition, he lost more than half his men because he essentially got to where Samuel Hearn arrived at the coast. And if you go up there, I believe you've been up around there, mouth of the Coppermine River. At that point, when he gets there, the Yellowknife Dene leader, Akaicho, is telling him, okay, look, we've got here, but we better turn back now. And Franklin says, no, I've got my orders. Akaicho says, no, no, I don't care about your orders. You want to go east, but if you do that, you're going to starve. Franklin says, no, no, I'm not going to starve. I'm going to run into some friendly Inuit who are going to help me out. Don't forget, I mean, we're Christian Royal Navy. The Lord will provide. Well, the Lord failed to provide, and he led his men west, and they went far enough until he finally realized, well, the Lord's not going to provide. So he finally turned around, and there's this desperate rush back to where they had some supplies, and uh, people are starving to death. A couple of people end up murdered. And Franklin himself is on his deathbed when a Kaicho, Kaicho's men, save him. So that's the first expedition. He goes back to Europe. He goes back to England, and uh, he tells that story. And because mostly uh, voyagers and native peoples were those who died, you know, they take this as a an example of British fortitude and, and heroism. Well, there you go. So Franklin becomes the man who ate his boots, and he's a hero. Okay. So, second expedition, again overland. This time he did learn a little bit, bit by bit. And second expedition, he gets to the mouth of the Mackenzie River, and there he falls in among some hostile Inuit out there, in, you know, near the coast. And they've had some doings with people sailing in. They surround him. There's a couple of hundred men. He's got two small boats and maybe a dozen men in all. This time it's an Enoch, whom he calls Augustus, who jumps into the water and talks furiously to the people. Uh, his name is Tatnoak. He manages to convince them, okay, let's let this guy go. Because they had three in his boat. They were holding on to him. He was trapped. I mean, it was going to end very badly for everybody concerned. But Tatnoak came to the rescue that second expedition. Third expedition, okay, Franklin marries an extraordinary woman. 
by the name of originally Jane Griffin. Who you've also written a book about. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a, a book about her too. But she's in Dead Reckoning. It's all there, you know, shorter, quicker in Dead Reckoning. I tell the stories quicker. So, yeah, she's an extraordinary traveler and so forth. She marries him because he becomes Sir John, and she will become Lady Franklin. So that then if she wanders into Alexandria, as she did, she's not Miss Jane Griffin. She's Lady Franklin. And that's a completely and utterly different thing. She knew that. Anyway, she gets him a job eventually down in Van Diemen's Land, which is now Tasmania part of uh, Australia. But he's lieutenant governor down there. Fantastic. She gets him that job. Unfortunately, you see, Franklin is way over his head. I mean, he's okay with a ship of, you know, two or three dozen men who all know the rules. If you come in drunk, you're going to get the lashed. They all understand that. All the same background, right? Okay, down in Tasmania, you've got the Aboriginal peoples, you've got the settlers, you've got the colonial administration, and you've got the prisoners, and you've got tens of thousands. I mean, this is completely and utterly different. Jane Franklin, as clever as she is, has never handled anything on that scale either. So the two of them eventually run afoul of an awful man named Montague. I, I hadn't ever encountered anyone who would tell barefaced lies about someone. Now I see that it does happen once in a while. Someone who's, you know, an inveterate liar. Amazing. But Montague was my first introduction to that. And he tells all these lies. Franklin is recalled in disgrace. Okay, that's why Jane Franklin then goes to work in England, gets him the job of this big expedition that's finally going to go out. Because now they've got the northern channel of the passage. They've got the southern channel pretty well elaborated. All they need to do is connect those two. How hard can it be? We're the greatest naval force in the world. We've got this terrific technology. I mean, Franklin's going to go there, and it's going to be a piece of cake. He's going to emerge trailing clouds of glory. Well, of course, it doesn't happen that way. Franklin disappears, and that expedition ends in the worst catastrophe in the history of Arctic exploration. And in fact, a few years back, because of recent finds, this has come back on the radar in terms of Canadians, and we've become well aware of that final expedition. Yes, yes, because we found the Erebus and the Terror, the two ships that he lost. And of course, the big news to do with that was discovered by John Ray on his extraordinary expedition in 1854. Again, a fur trade traveler, fur trade explorer, probably the greatest overland traveler of the times, undoubtedly, in fact. He learned from the Inuit, he learned from the Cree, and uh, he applied those lessons. And in his 1854 expedition, he solved the two great mysteries of 19th century exploration. He found the final link in the first navigable Northwest Passage, and he discovered the fate of Franklin in that the most salient aspect to it is the cannibalism that ensued. Uh, you know, among the final survivors, that is what riveted Victorian attention. And uh, he brought that back. And of course, they didn't want to hear that. So that's all very much part of the story as well. Now, John Ray's success was, as you point out, due in large part to his uh, willingness to adopt indigenous technologies. 
Uh, he was quite different than most Europeans at that time, wasn't he? Yeah, he was an absolute leader in that respect. He was a medical man and a terrific hunter when he went over. But he didn't come over and say, oh, I know all about it. Just get out of my way. I'm going to show you how this is done. He learned from George Rivers, his Cree friend at Moose Factory, how to cache meat to protect it from the wolves and so forth, because he didn't learn that back in Orkney, where he came from. And then he studied, uh, you know, he traveled with the Ligbuk, leading Enoch, and uh, looked. he saw, well, wait, wait a minute, how come your sled is running faster than mine? And Ulugbuk showed him how to ice his sled runners, you know, and how to build snow huts rather than, you know, lugging all your gear. So he set out to learn from the First Nations and the Inuit, and that's precisely what he did. And that's what enabled him to excel. There were others that, you know, went down that road too. But Ray, Ray was undoubtedly the foremost overland traveler of the age. Can you give us a quick review of one of your favorite explorers of the 20th century in terms of this of the Arctic? Well, 20th century, I, I think you have to look to Roald Amundsen. I mean, the, the, the peerless Amundsen. I mean, he was the first one to sail through the Northwest Passage. I mean, he read about the Franklin Expedition. He learned what John Ray had done. He understood all that. He said, okay, I see what I have to do. And uh, he went out in a small boat and sailed through the passage. And he too, but he stopped. See, this is key. He stopped, he spent two winters at Joe Haven on King William Island. And there, he, like John Ray, studied what the Inuit had to tell him. Okay, here's how you travel with dogs. Uh, here's how you use your snowshoes, etc., etc. So he learned that there. That's what enabled him subsequently to become the first one to reach the South Pole. I mean, because he learned from the Inuit. Okay, Scott brought, unbelievable as it may seem, Scott brought ponies to travel over, <laughs> over the Antarctic ice. I mean, Amundsen knew enough because he'd been up in the north. Well, wait a minute, I'm going to bring dogs, which is precisely what he did. That's why he, was, he managed to be the first to the South Pole. He was probably also the first to, to, to get over the North Pole. If we, I, th and I think we have to discount Robert Peary. Frederick Cook is an interesting, like, I, I, I think the jury's still out on Frederick Cook. Mm -hmm. Well, fascinating story about Amundsen. Thank you very much for this interview. This is the Champlain Society podcast, Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and my guest today was Ken McGugan, and he was talking to us about his fascinating book, Dead Reckoning, the Untold Story of the Northwest Passage. This interview was recorded at the Alan Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Pernia Jamshed and Hugh Backhurst. Thank you all. <laughs>